Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. About 1991, lots of years ago, I went to Minnesota to visit a friend, and I was there for a weekend. It was a nice weekend. I enjoyed seeing some new things, spending time with her, and I came home. A few months later, I got a phone call about the cell phone that I had purchased in Minnesota. (laughs) I didn't purchase a cell phone in Minnesota that I also hadn't paid for and that I was way behind on, and it was somebody trying to collect the money for my cell phone. I said, well, I don't live in Minnesota, and I don't own a cell phone. It was 91. It was pre when everybody had one. And they said, well, is this your name? I said, yeah, that's my name. They said, well, is this your social security number? I said, Ah, yeah, that's my social security number. And they said, is this your birthday? And thankfully, it was not my birthday. I said, no, that's not my birthday. They said, it's not your birthday. I said, no, actually, I'm telling you the truth. I did not take a cell phone in Minnesota. And so they said, okay, no problem. Uh, Just fill out an affidavit of fraud. Get it sent to us. You won't be billed for the charges. I said, great. I actually had to fill out two affidavits of fraud because there were two cell phone companies that this involved. And I forgot all about it. I was absolved of the charges. No big deal. Five years later, when I went to buy a car, my first car as a grown-up from the, you know, the dealer with a loan, he took a look at my credit report and said, you will not be able to get a loan anywhere. And I'm like, well, why? What's wrong? He goes, well, that cell phone you didn't pay for in Minnesota. (laughs) Okay, so did you know that you can get it approved that it's not you and yet it still is impacting your credit? In 1998, when Jeff and I got married, I couldn't sign on purchasing our first house together because with my name on the documents, uh, we couldn't get approved for a loan. That was seven years later. This was a headache that lasted about 10 years because I kept getting letters in the mail or calls. Did you know that when you have proven to one collection agency that it was fraud, they put your file in a closed pile and every so often they sell their whole closed pile to another collection agency that's hoping they can bleed the turnip and get a little bit of money out of their closed files. I talked to an attorney, I affirmed that I didn't have any responsibility, I quit answering the letters because I knew I didn't owe the next collection agency an answer, but it made me so angry. (laughs) Every time a letter would come in the mail, my blood pressure would spike and it'd be about 24 hours before I'd cool off again because I just couldn't believe that one instance could knock things sideways for 10 years. Identity theft is a really big deal and it can impact things beyond what you ever anticipate for longer than you anticipate. Last week, Steve Fowler launched us in our series of identity theft, not the theft of your birth date or your social security number or your credit card, but of who you are, of who God calls you. In in Psalm 139, it tells us that God knew us when we were being formed in our mother's womb. He had a plan and a purpose and a design for our life. I call that our destiny, that that God-given calling. And the enemy seeks to chip away at that foundation and steal that because by taking our identity, this identity theft idea. Steve gave a really simple definition last week and it was this. Identity gives me a sense of who I am and why I am valuable of who I am and why I am valuable. And there are two foundational truths in our Christian walk that play into this. The first one is who God is, and the second one is who we are. Because if we know a really solid awareness of who God is, that God is love, and everything that is in his hands is motivated by love, 
that he is all-knowing. There is nothing in our world that is a mystery to him. Not the things about to happen, not the things that have happened in the past, not what's going on medically inside our body where nobody can figure out what's wrong. None of it is a mystery. God is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. There is nothing that is outside of the reach of his ability to act and impact. And when we know who God is and we know who we are, that we are called his children, that we are adopted, that we have been given his holiness and his righteousness, that we've been given gifts, spiritual gifts, to, to have impact in his kingdom and his world, that we were born with strengths and our weaknesses, and we can humbly recognize who we are, we can change the world. We can be kingdom shakers, world changers. And some of you go, ah, Jennifer, nobody can change the world. Think about the things going on that we hear news of every day. And I would say, you have a sphere of influence. And when you know who God is, and when you know who you are, you are a threat to the enemy of our soul because you can walk out your calling and your divine purpose in your sphere of influence. Think about where we've seen this. Somebody like Billy Graham, okay, big name, but he knew who God was that God is our redeemer, he is our savior, he is the hope of nations. Even when those nations or communities or cultures don't know that they need him, and who he was, he was a country boy with a voice and a gift, and his platform grew and his sphere of influence grew, and as he walked with courage and humility and confidence, he changed the world. Bring it closer to home. What happens across the street at Salem Free Clinics? There are people who know who God is. He is healer. He's the one who came to seek and save those who are lost. It says he didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick because they need to get well. And we have those in our community who know who they are. Maybe they have administrative gifts or nursing ability or doctor ability. And by putting these two things together, who God is and what his heart is and what they have to give moving forward with confidence and with humility and with courage, they're changing the face of the underinsured and the uninsured in Salem, Oregon. They are bringing healing and help and hope to those who do not fit into our traditional medical system. And how many times when we talk about roses at the cross are we saying this many people at Salem Free Clinics this week prayed to receive Jesus as their savior. They're changing the world because they know who God is and what his heart is and who they are. And this is the reason that these are two truths that the enemy attacks most ferociously. Is it not true that the enemy of our soul attacks who God is and who we are in our culture and in our society? 1 Peter 5.8 tells us as Christ followers to be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We have an enemy. It is the enemy of God and the enemy of our souls, and he's looking for someone to devour. In John chapter eight, starting in verse 44, Jesus actually has this to say about that enemy. He says, for you are the children of your father, the devil. The people he was talking to didn't really like that. They were actually religious people. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We have an enemy who is a liar and the father of lies. And he's chipping away at these two truths of who God is and who we are. We know the God lies in our society, don't we? There's the atheist lie that says there is no God, that this is all a cosmic accident, 
Then there's the lie that would say, okay, maybe there is divine intention in our world, but then he just removed himself and there is no divine presence in our current world. Then there's a lie that says, okay, yeah, there's a creator and there is divine presence, but that divine presence can't be good if there is suffering in our world. And just like the enemy did back in Genesis with Adam and Eve, casting doubt on what God had said and convincing them that God was not trustworthy and could not be trusted to be good, he continues to cast doubt, sometimes in major ways, like the atheist lie, the obvious ways, and sometimes in really subtle ways that just make our soul question if God really is loving and all-powerful and all-wise. He chips away with the God lies He also chips away with what we call the identity lies, the lies about who we are. In my family, there are 12 grandchildren on my husband's side of the family, and 11 out of the 12 have gone to Silverton High School. The only reason the 12th hasn't is because she's not old enough yet. We are foxes through and through, and we're a basketball family, which if you've heard me talk before, you probably know that. But there's one nephew who shall remain unnamed, Davis, who in his adulthood has turned and he is part of the assistant coaching staff at (coughs) Wilsonville. (sighs) Great town, probably really good people, but a huge rival of Silverton, okay? So when Davis shows up at the basketball games, this is inevitably my thought process. Oh, hey, Davis has come to watch the cousins. Wait a second, he has a camera. He's videoing the game. He's not here to watch his cousins. He's here to scout for Wilsonville. And if you're ever sitting near the family at a game that Davis comes to scout, you'll hear all this, boo, hiss, Davis. If it's Christmas or Easter or any other time, I really love Davis. But man, when he's scouting for Wilsonville, boo, hiss, Davis. The thing is, the teams will then watch the tape. They'll look at the plays and the plans and the strengths and the weaknesses, and they'll, they'll watch tape so that they know how to oppose that team. So they'll say, okay, watch this. This is their play. When this player goes there, you know that this player is gonna go there. So here's how you're gonna play defense on that. You're gonna move this way because you know what's coming because you scouted the team and you know that play and you know what they're gonna do. And what we're wanting to do with this series is this is a scouting report on your enemy. The devil who is a liar and the father of lies. And and God's word is that scouting report and it tells us his strategies and the way he works. Other people who have gone before and lived this life, they're part of that scouting report because we can say, hey, I've seen it happen this way and when you see this happen, pay attention because this might be the next thing to happen. We're not teaching this identity theft series because we want you to feel better about yourselves. We're also not teaching this so that we can stack up, you know, the truths about your worthiness against the untruths and hope that the stack gets higher. We recognize that if we are living according to the lies that the enemy hurls at us, we have a faulty foundation. We need to identify those lies, allow the Holy Spirit of the living God to speak truth and walk forward with a firm foundation. Many, many years ago, I was talking with a counselor about a young boy who had had demonstrated some things of shame in his life, and he was too young to have had, I was like, where could this shame be coming from? And this counselor looked at me and she said, Jennifer, who knows what lies the enemy is spewing into his little head? The Bible tells us that when it talks about our spiritual armor, that the shield of faith extinguishes the fiery darts of the enemy, the fiery darts of the enemy are the lies. 
So how do we recognize a lie for a lie and turn to God for the truth and live different? So this series is about exposing the plan of the enemy so that we can gain the identity advantage. We don't focus on identity theft so that you can focus on the negative for a month. We want you to have the identity advantage of knowing the scouting report so that you can enter into more and more fully who God made you to be. Because see, the issue of your value was settled at the cross. And the enemy of your soul wants you to think that the issue of your value is about your performance, or if other people are happy with you, or if you're staying in control of things. And that's what we're gonna talk about over the next few weeks. But the issue of your value was settled at the cross. Here's how Rob Reamer says it. He's the author of Soul Care. He says this, God doesn't love us because of who we are or what we do. God loves us because of who he is and what he has done, which makes God's love and our foundation unshakable. You see, if our value, that, that we are worthy of being loved, depends on how we do, then it is a shaky foundation. But if we know that our value and the issue of that value, the fact that we are loved has everything to do with what God does and what he is doing, then we know that we are on a rock solid firm foundation. So what is this lie? Today we're gonna to talk about the performance lie. The lie that the issue of my value is dependent on my performance. And friends, isn't this the message of our world? Everywhere we look, the pressure on students to get the grades and get the scholarship or to make the team and to start on varsity or the pressure on the, the performance reviews at work. You know, how many of you, when you get a performance review, get 10 positives and one area for growth and you fixate on the area for growth? That's me. That's an evidence of this performance lie at work. This, because what happens is, if I do something and it doesn't go well, let's say I fail, it's natural and realistic to be disappointed, to be sad, to even be apologetic. But when my emotions and my reactions are disproportionate to the situation that I'm in, it starts to be a flag that says, wait a second, there's something bigger going on here than the fact that I just didn't do something the way that I wanted to do it. Because it's not just about the disappointment of the way this situation went, it's actually poking at the core of who I am. And that if you think that I didn't do that right, then there's something intrinsically wrong with me and really I'm actually unworthy of being loved. That's the lie of the enemy. Me, that if your performance doesn't measure up, you are unworthy, you are unlovable, and he chips away at our foundation, and he knocks us sideways. And it can knock us sideways in big ways, and it can knock us sideways for a long time. And it's the evidence of this performance lie at work. If you're a person who finds that you are really driven by the shoulds, you should do this, you should know that. I should have done it this way. I should have understood that. I should have known not to do that. That is another little flag, a little warning sign. Hmm, pause. Jesus, is there a lie at work in my life? Is there something you wanna show me? Because to be driven by the shoulds at a certain level exposes that we've got a lie going on here. What's fascinating is you and I most likely know in our heads, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that our value does not depend on what we do. And I could say, I know my value is in being a child of God, but my anxiety and my defensiveness and my overreaction and the disproportionate sense of shame exposes that really in my soul, 
I can't get away from the belief that what I do is dependent, is, is what my value is dependent on. And it exposes that there's something deeper going on here. And when we catch a glimpse of that, what is our response to that? Maybe it's this, maybe one of the ways we see it is the overachiever, the person who's just so stressed and busy all the time because I have to make sure I do it right. But do you know that another evidence of it could be the underachiever? The person who's so afraid of failure that they don't do anything. They don't make decisions. They don't get started because to fail is not an option. Have you ever heard somebody say, failure is not an option? Or have you said it? You are listening to the performance lie. Failure happens to all of us. Failure is a part of life. Failure doesn't determine whether or not I'm an okay person or if at my core I'm bad. But when we are at this place of failure is not an option because if I fail, it's tied into more than this event. It's tied into my identity. I heard somebody teach once that if you have a fear of failure, which being a poster child for a recovering perfectionist, I identified with the fear of failure. He said, if you have a fear of failure, the best way to get over that is to go out and fail. Fail big. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Who in their right mind would go do something that they knew they had a chance of failing at? Because you gotta keep it all together and make sure that your performance looks good. It all then boils down to image maintenance, doesn't it? It's this image maintenance of I've gotta make sure that I am measuring up to the performance or the success of what other people think I need or what I think I need. And this is what then degrades into where we compete with each other and we compare ourselves to one another. It's not enough to just succeed at something. I've gotta be the best. I've gotta be the top. I've gotta be number one. I need to be the valedictorian. I need to be the team captain. I need to be athlete of the week. We compare ourselves with others. I'm okay as long as I'm better than them. My performance is good as long as I can keep my, you know, my place in the chart. We compare and we compete and we should. And we have this disproportionate shame. What about, what about those approaching retirement? You know, when we meet somebody, what do we say? What do you do? What do we mean? We mean, what's your job? What's your occupation? If you've been a person who's in a subtle way has had this lie of performance speaking into your life, approaching retirement can be really scary. Because if we're defined by the job that we do, what happens when the job that we do is no longer our job, right? There's so many ways and facets where this lie comes to play in our lives. Some of them great big glaring ways and some of them so subtle and so devious. It even comes into our religion, doesn't it? You know, as Christ followers, we want to serve and give and behave. And if we do, then we're valued and we're loved and we're acceptable. But if we don't, what happens? We feel judged and condemned and shamed. Friends, exposing the lie of the enemy is a community effort because I need to hear the voice of the living God in me. But when I've messed up, I also need to come to a community that understands that my value was settled at the cross and it's not about the mess up that I just had and I come to the place of grace. Now hear me, God convicts us of sin and he calls us to be obedient and he shows us the path to live. This is not this sense of license of just do anything, it's all fine. It's this sense that no matter what we do, it doesn't chip away at the core of who we are and who God calls us and where our value is anchored. The problem with a message like this is that if you are a person impacted by the performance lie, you are hearing this sermon as a performance challenge. <laughs> oh, 
She's right. I shouldn't feel that way. I shouldn't think that way. I need to work on this. I should know the lies of the enemy. I've been a Christ follower for 30 years. I shouldn't be deceived by this. I should be able to recognize it and know. And you know what happens? We feel ashamed and then we pile on shame that we felt ashamed and we didn't know better than to not feel ashamed in the first place. (laughs) Far be it from me to create a performance problem for those of us suffering from the performance lie. So let's say this. This is not about you figuring out how to fix this. This is about you being aware of the plans of your enemy. This is about you watching some film and seeing, okay, when this player goes here, you know that this player is gonna come here. And so as a defense, you're gonna come around over here. And it's not about you knowing what, how to fix it yourself. It's about you seeing what the enemy is doing. And in that moment, what we do is we say, dear Jesus, here it is again. And I, have, I don't know how to do this. I've been coming up against this for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And I need you to show me a different way. When I've been agreeing with the lies of the enemy, I need you to speak truth into my head and my heart. When I recognize that my defensiveness or my compulsion, compulsive behaviors or... <laughs> Here's another flag for the performance lie. If you have a really hard time with correction, when I was a young adult, my mom and I had a conversation and she said, Jennifer, raising you was really a pleasure. You didn't push hard against us very often. She said, but one thing that's always been a mystery to me, do you have any idea why correction was always so hard for you? And at the time I said, no, I really don't know, but I know that it's true that man, when correction comes, it just, it's cringeworthy. God, and I can't, no, that's not, and I'm really defensive about it. And I've found as I've gone to Life Path and other support groups and, and come to know and had God expose some things to me is that the reason that I have such a visceral reaction against correction is because it means I've done something wrong. And if I've done something wrong, then my performance was not okay. I should have known before you needed to correct me what the right thing was to do. And the reason that that is such a strong reaction is because it's tied into my value as a person and as a beloved child. This isn't about how you fix it. This is about being open to the awareness, asking Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the things that have been in the dark, and then walking forward in a different way. Peter is the poster child for our value is not dependent on our performance. Peter was the disciple of Jesus who at the very beginning of his call, Jesus renamed. His name was Simon and Jesus said, your name will be Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. He told him his destiny. He told him his name. He spoke truth over him. He told him his identity. He says, you are not Simon, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And do you know what followed? was three years of ministry with Jesus where Peter messed up over and over and over and over again. And do you know that Jesus knew how Peter was gonna mess up when he named him? Jesus knew how Peter was gonna mess up when he called him. Peter was the one who walked on water and then doubt crept in and he sank. Peter was the one who was the first to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he was the one to whom Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because what you are saying is not of God. Peter was the one who thought that he was to defend Jesus and cut off the servant's ear in the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus rebuked him and healed the guy's ear. He was confused. Can you imagine? I think I'm supposed to defend you. These guys are coming to arrest you. I'm your follower. He's the one who said, never, ever will I leave you. I will go to death if I have to. And within 24 hours, he had sat in the courtyard and denied that he even knew Jesus three times. 
Jesus knew that all those things were going to happen when he looked at Peter and said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Our value does not depend on our performance. It's who God says we are and us leaning into the reality of doing life with who God is. Two stories from the life of Peter that I think illustrates what we're talking about here. The first one is found in Luke chapter five, and it was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It was one of the first times that he and Peter had met. Jesus had been teaching on the Sea of Galilee. Peter had come in from a night of fishing, and Jesus said, hey, can I get in your boat? We'll pull out from shore, and I'll teach from there. So Jesus has been teaching from Peter's boat when we uh, start reading here in chapter four. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. Translation, hey teacher, we're the fishermen, we've done this, they're not biting. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. A Little bit of questioning, a little bit of reluctance, but okay. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. Let's look at that again. Peter's response when he was brought face to face with the power and the presence of the living God was, He realized what had happened. He fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. What rose up in Peter? That he was unworthy. That he was unworthy of this perfection and this power and this person who was from God. He was unworthy because he had an acute awareness of his sinfulness. It was just right in his face. All those things, I don't know if if it's one of those times like when your life flashes before your eyes, just this sinfulness, sinfulness. In the presence of a holy God, he had this acute awareness of his sinfulness. So what did he do? He withdraws from Jesus. He puts out a stiff arm and says, nope, I can't be near you. I can't be in your presence. I'm not worthy. I'm too sinful. He's withdrawing from Jesus. Let's look at a second and very similar instance in Peter's life. This one happens about three years later. It's at the end of Jesus' ministry. He's already been crucified and he rose again. The disciples have seen him in Jerusalem and they've gone to Galilee and they're waiting in Galilee. They've done three years of life and ministry with Jesus. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his miracles. They know his character and his person. And Peter says, this is in John 21, starting in verse three, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Your name is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And what is he doing? He's fishing. We'll come too, they all said, which is testimony to the fact that he's a leader and people follow him. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Sound familiar? At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of that boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, uh, John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. So we know that John said to Peter, it's the Lord. When, notice that Simon Peter didn't figure out it was the Lord. These situations are pretty similar. I don't like to say something bad about a guy, but he was a little dense. 
Then again, so am I. <laughs> the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. I personally dress for work. Um, but he put on his tunic and jumped into the water and headed to shore. What an amazingly different response to an incredibly similar situation. Let's look at this verse again. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, jumped into the water and headed to shore. He jumped into the water. He couldn't get to Jesus close enough. What is the difference in his response this time? First, he has recognition. He did not get this recognition by himself. It took a friend saying to him, hey, this is the Lord. Notice, this is God at work. He had recognition. And then next, he held on to the truth. Remember, the difference between the first catch of fish and the second catch of fish is that Peter had walked with Jesus for three years. He'd heard about forgiveness and grace and love and mercy. And he knew that they were called adopted and that they were his own and that he had received a new name according to Jesus and that over and over again he had failed and yet Jesus continued to pour into him. And so he held on to that truth even as he realized that the place I want to be is as close to Jesus as fast as I can possibly get there. And so he ran to Jesus. Quite literally, he swam, but for our purposes, we're going to say he ran to Jesus. Let's put these up side by side for a minute, because what this is, is the difference between somebody who is listening to the performance lie of the enemy and somebody who knows who they are in Jesus, no matter how much they have failed. He feels unworthy, this acute awareness of sinfulness, this withdrawing from Jesus. Can I just say, friends, that I think this response is far too common in our Christian setting. Here's the deal, we come to Jesus, we know in that first moment of conversion our sinfulness, and we ask him for forgiveness, and we commit to live according to his way, and then what happens is we think it's up to us to do it right all along the way. Did you know that he says, in the same way that you came to him as Lord, live out your faith? That same humble recognition that we can't do it day by day by day and we throw ourselves on him. But far too often when we become aware of our sinfulness, of the fact that we've been deceived by the enemy and we've been listening to lies, we turn to unworthy, acute awareness of our sinfulness and we stiff arm Jesus and we say, nah, I can't go close there right now. I don't deserve to be close there. And yet, the Peter who had lived with Jesus, the later Peter, he recognizes the truth of what's going on. Whether that's God's presence or the lie of the enemy or his own sinfulness, there's this recognition that rises up. He holds to the truth of the teaching that he's heard from Jesus, and he runs to Jesus. You guys, after Jesus ascended into heaven and Peter was part of all the disciples and, and, and they did build the church and he was a rock of the church, do you know that he still kept making mistakes? <laughs> That they're still recorded, but the issue of who he was in Christ had been settled for good when he ran to Jesus. And so the question I would ask you is, where are you? Do you find that when the storms of life rise, when your own self-doubt creeps in, when you have fallen and sinned and made a decision that you wish you hadn't made, do you find that it is the voice of the early Peter, the unworthy, acute awareness of sin, stiff-arming Jesus, or do you find that it is the voice of the later Peter saying, yep, I know, here I am again, I'm fishing. <laughs> but 
you are God and you've just brought it to my awareness and I'm gonna run to you and I'm gonna lean into you and I'm gonna believe what you say about me. And I wanna be really honest, in my own life, I kinda ping pong back and forth between these two. There are seasons when shame has the loudest voice in my head and it's really hard to hear the voice of God or to hold to his truth. But there are other seasons when I know that I am beloved of the Father and that what I do can't change my belovedness and I can be disappointed about a mistake or a decision or a failure, but it doesn't rock the core of who I am because I know that Jesus' invitation to me is always to run to him. And what I wanna say is this, this unworthiness, this legalistic view of pushing Jesus away, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. You are a chosen, beloved, holy, righteous, adopted child of the living King who is always welcome in the presence of your God. And who you are is the person who recognizes, who holds to truth, and who will run to Jesus every single time. So how do we do this? How do we move from this place of being so influenced by the lies of our enemy to this place of being able to run to Jesus and see who we really are in him? And I would say we do it the way that Peter did. We do it the way that Peter did. We first recognize the reality of what's going on. We recognize, I've been listening to the lies. We recognize, ah, there's a truth that I think I need to know more about. There's this chart I wanna show you. If you're not a chart person, go ahead and close your eyes. This is a little overwhelming. If you are a chart person, you might want to take a picture of it. Um, and if you're really a chart person, go ahead and Google intensity of feelings because there's like the full-blown chart, okay? But remember I said that one of the ways we can recognize a lie at work in our life is if our emotions are out of proportion with the situation, right? So we've got these five basic emotions and the high, medium, and low. Now, hear me. I am not telling you performance-minded people how you're supposed to feel or not feel. <laughs> Okay? Our feelings are not right or wrong. They are a tool that God gives us to let us know what is going on in our soul. Okay? So this isn't a should about where you're supposed to fall on this chart. But this is an awareness that if something has happened in your life that maybe you would feel annoyed about, but you're up there in irate, is the emotion out of proportion with the situation? And might that be a clue to say... Father, would you expose what lie is at work here? Because I am aware that I am overreacting to this. Here's an example from my own life over here in the ashamed column. Uh, this week, I had a mom fail. Uh, let's be clear, it was a really big mom fail. And I was, I was not in the low category. I was embarrassed, I was apologetic, I was guilty. I was feeling this thing. And as I continued processing it, this triggered a massive performance line meltdown. I was up there in mortified and unworthy, and I'm having this conversation with my husband where I'm hearing myself say words like, if I can't even keep it together at home, who am I to think that I can be a pastor? I'm supposed to preach this weekend on the performance lie. How in the world do I even think I'm worthy of that? If I, and as I heard the words come out of my mouth, it was a trigger. My emotions about the situation, now hear me, it was a big mom fail. <laughs> there was a realistic sense of, God, I wish I had done that different. But my reaction was out of proportion with the situation. And I actually sensed this thing from God of, and actually, Jennifer, it's just a really good sermon illustration. So pull it together, come back to center, no need to quit your job today. Yeah, there's some things I'd like to do different in, in, in trying to make sure that doesn't happen again in my home, but... You see that the out of proportion emotion triggered the sense of, oh wait, there's a lie at play here, right? 
So we recognize. The second thing is to hold on to truth. There's a verse that we often quote, and I want to read us the whole context of it here. It's John 8, 31 and 32. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We often quote, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But friends, there is a life and death difference between knowing the truth and holding on to the truth. Holding on is active and present, and it takes a sense of a frame of mind and a thought process and a decision and an intentionality because what the verse actually says is, if you hold to my teaching, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We need to be people who hold to the teaching of Jesus. And how do we do this practically day to day? We need to know his word. I've got a, a passage, Romans 12, 2. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When I recognize that I've been agreeing with the lies of the enemy, I say, Jesus, I need to be transformed again by the renewing of my mind. If I recognize that my, my compulsions are really acting up and my defensiveness, I'm like, you know what? I have been listening to the lies again. I need to anchor back into that passage that says there is nothing, neither height nor death or powers or principalities that can separate you from the love of God. No failed marriage, no failed class, no failed sports team, no failed relationship or job or sermon can separate us from the love of God. And we anchor into that truth. That is how we hold to the truth is by rehearsing what is in his word, by rehearsing what our wise and godly friends reflect back to us, by rehearsing and asking the living spirit of God is still speaking, friends. When we find ourselves in this place where we recognize that a lie has been at work, we can say, God, what is your truth? What do you think of me? How do you see me? And we can hold to his truth by listening to his voice. And finally, like Peter, we run to Jesus. We don't stiff arm, we run because he is the only place and in his presence is the only place where we can truly know who God is and who we are and be poised to be kingdom shakers and world changers. Let's pray. Father, you are good, you are holy, you are righteous and powerful and pure. And the enemy would have us think that that means we cannot be close to you and yet you have adopted us and called us your children and gifted us with your holiness, God. As we do life on this broken planet that is shadowed by sin and by the deception of our enemy, God, may we be people who have eyes to see your truth and to recognize a lie for a lie. God, even today in the hearts and minds and souls of those of us sitting here, would you expose where the enemy has been influencing in a deceptive way and would you speak your truth to that place, that our value, that we are loved, does not depend on our behavior or our performance. God, we look to you and we love you. Please lead us in this truth. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.